Jesus, and then continues in chapters 2 and 3 with letters from Christ to seven actual churches in Asia Minor, which is what, what is today um, modern-day Turkey. And so Jesus is writing to seven churches, churches that he built, churches that he is watching over. And that's a solemn reminder for us today. Jesus watches over his church. He watches over his church. And what we have seen so far is that these seven cities, they had reputations and the churches within them had their own reputations. Just think about cities um, in our nation and the reputations they have earned or nicknames they have been given. I'm going to see how good we are with some of our geography and some culture and Let's see if we can uh, figure this out. We'll, we'll start over here with New York Dean. So New York City. The Big Apple or the city that never sleeps. Okay, very good. Los Angeles. City of Angels. They laugh in the first service. Yeah, yep. Okay, Chicago. Okay, the Windy City. Philadelphia. Okay, City of Brotherly Love. Very good. Detroit. Either the Motor City or Motown, very good. Uh, Houston. So Houston is, is Space City. Houston is Space City. New Orleans. The Big Easy. And of course, the easy one of them all, Las Vegas. So Sin City. Um, now, some of you right now are probably wondering what in the world does this have to do with anything in the book of Revelation? And I'm, if that's your thought, I'm glad you're thinking that because what is the point? And simply this, from what we're about to read from Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamum, the Christians there may have well uh, or may well be described or have been described as living in the city um, that was Satan's or Satan's city. So if Pergamum had a nickname, it would be Satan's city. Pergamum was Asia's capital for about 250 years and was considered its greatest city. It was a city where the wicked Roman Empire would gather or meet to make decisions. It contained the second largest library in the ancient world at the time, holding at least 200,000 scrolls, second only to the library at Alexandria in Egypt. In fact, it is said that um, Mark Antony actually gave this library in Pergamum to Cleopatra when they, as a wedding gift. So um, we have that in, in history. Pergamum was also, on top of all of that, an extremely idolatrous city. It was a center for pagan cults, for various deities. It is said that when the wicked Babylonian Empire fell, that all of the occult and mythological um, pictures of that city changed headquarters and moved to Pergamum. So therefore, many demonic, idolatrous practices prevailed in this city. Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to Caesar Augustus, was the first to build a temple to Zeus and to the serpent god um, Asclepius, which was a, a god of mystical healing. They had other temples for every other Roman gods and goddesses that you could think of. So all of these things may have been why Jesus called this city the place where Satan dwells. The place where Satan dwells. And Pergamum actually means thoroughly married. So here you have a city that was thoroughly married to Satan. It was thoroughly married to this world, the practices and the ways of this world. So with that foundation laid, I want us to dive into the word, to the third letter 
um, of Jesus to his church, and as you see on the screen, to the, the compromising church. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read verses 12 through 17 together. And let me just remind you, what we're about to read are the words of Jesus Christ to his church. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where, Satan, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, God, you know us. We are your church, Jesus, and you know us. And we ask today that you would reveal to us, God, Lord, what it is that you think of us. Lord, help us to see this day, God, what it is, Lord, not just that you said to a church 2,000 years ago, what it is from this letter that you're saying to us. What it is, Father, that we can, Lord, take home, that we can act upon, that we can put into practice in our lives. Speak, O oh God, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So think about this. What is the greatest danger that the church today faces? Is it Satan? Is it persecution? Is it opposition from wicked people? Is it the competition of all the other world religions? Is it the existence of cults all around us? And I would answer no to all of those. The greatest danger in the church is none of these, even though all of those are dangerous and a danger to us. Actually, the church's greatest need is not, or the greatest danger of the church is not found outside the church. It's actually found inside the church. Our greatest danger can be summed up in one word, and you can see that word on the screen, compromise. It's the greatest danger of the church. Nothing will drain the energy of the church or nothing will poison the lifeblood of the church like the toxin of compromise. There's a story of a man who could not decide what side he wanted to fight on during the U.S. Civil War. So he put the coat of the North on and the trousers of the South, and guess what happened? He got shot at by both sides. And so the, the point is, is this is what happens to compromisers, to the person who tries to live in two worlds. It's one miserable place. When our lives are filled with compromise and worldliness, we are of no godly good to the world around us. I think of the words of Charles Spurgeon back in the 1800s. Listen to what he said. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present time has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. And then he, he further said this, put your finger on any prosperous page in church's history and you will find a little marginal note reading thus, in this age, men could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. 
So maybe, just maybe, the reason the church is not having the impact it once had is because we look more like the world than we ever have. So this, so this compromise, this worldliness was the, the, the disease that infected the church at Pergamum. And no church is immune from its attack. The question for us is how does Christ deal with a church that is compromising? How does Christ deal with a church when the church becomes sinner-friendly instead of sinner-frightening? And I'm not saying that we don't welcome sinners in, that we want sinners under the the sound of God's word. But if a sinner can come in and leave as if this was the greatest message and not be confronted in their sin, then the church is doing it wrong. Or how does Christ treat a church when the church becomes affirming rather than convicting, sentimental rather than theological, when the church becomes um, completely informal rather than solemn or entertaining rather than edifying? When the church becomes deceptive rather than honest or frivolous rather than worshipful. And we kind of get the idea. How does Christ deal with his church in the midst of compromise? So we're going to look at four truths today. Unpack four truths from this reading. One, dealing with who Christ is. Three, dealing with the church. And there's going to be some some, um, heavy conviction today, just so you know. Um, Heavy conviction that God, through his spirit, lavished upon me. And I, I pray And believing that it's going to be the same for you today. But we're going to begin with Christ. So truth number one, Christ is characterized by his authority. Christ is characterized by his authority. As we've seen the last two weeks, each of these seven letters to the seven churches begins with or at least alludes to a description of Jesus from Revelation 1, 12 through 18. So to the church at Ephesus, Jesus identified himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. To the church at Smyrna, Jesus claimed to be the first, the last, the one who is dead and has come to life. And to the church at Pergamum, Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, verse 12, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And it's kind of interesting because Pergamum is the only church that Jesus gives one attribute. Every other church he gives two. To Pergamum he gives one, and it's not an encouraging attribute. When we hear the, the, um, of someone who has a sharp two-edged sword, we immediately think of someone holding a sword in their hand, either defending themselves or on the offensive. But in the case of Jesus, what we're seeing is the word is coming out of his mouth. Even though it doesn't appear that way in verse 12, when you keep reading uh, this letter, of course it's coming out of his mouth, and and. Revelation 1.16, the word is coming out of his mouth. And Revelation 19, the word is coming out of his mouth. So the, the fact that the word of God is coming out of the mouth of Jesus shows that Jesus is God. So Jesus speaks the word of God. And kind of follow with me here. Every week when I stand behind this pulpit, my ultimate goal, my ultimate desire is to speak the word of God. To out of my mouth to come the word of God. But Jesus speaking the word of God and me speaking the word of God is completely different. I'm speaking his word. Um, they are the words of God speaking. And every time Jesus speaks, they are the words of God. That is the ultimate picture. Jesus speaks the words of God. He's not quoting anyone. He's declaring the words of God. One commentator, Grant Osborne, put it this way. The reference to a sword in this passage carried special significance for the Christians in Pergamum, given the fact that the sword was a symbol of the Roman proconsul's total sovereignty over every area of life, especially to execute enemies of the state. This tells the church that it is the exalted Christ, not Roman officials, who is the true judge. The ultimate power belongs to God, and nothing the pagans can do will change that. So ironically, 
Rome had given Pergamum the rare power of exercising capital punishment on its own. The symbol of their authority, Pergamum's authority, was the sword. So Pergamum, what Jesus is saying is this, Pergamum might wield or hold the sword here on earth, but I have a greater sword coming from heaven. And here's the thing, church, that is the, the sword that we better fear. We better fear that sword more than we fear the sword of this world. So when we think about man holding a sword or Jesus holding a sword, we better fear him. And this sword is a sharp and double-edged sword. It's not dull. It cuts clean and quick. Double-edged means it, it heals and it hurts. It cuts and it cures. This statement recalls the words of Hebrews 4.12, our memory verse for this week. The word of God is living and powerful or living and active. It is alive. You see it on the screen. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of every heart. Here's what we have to understand. The word of God is at once an instrument of death and it's an instrument of life. And unless you have met the, the word of God in that way, I'm going to make a, a crazy statement. Unless you've met the word of God as an instrument of death and life, you're not saved. And what I mean by that is this. What the Word of God does, the Gospel does, is first of all, it slays us in our sin. It shows us our absolute sinfulness before God. And the Word of God leaves us spiritually dead and shows us how dead we are before a holy God. But not only does the Word of God show us that, then the Word of God has the power to take us from death to life awakening our hearts, bringing us to life in Him. I'm so thankful that God doesn't just leave us in our death. He brings us by His Word from death to life. So Christ is characterized by His authority. Now let's look at the church. Secondly, the church is commended for its audacity. So the church is commended for its audacity or for its boldness. Let's break down verse 13 together. Jesus begins by saying this, I know where you dwell. Or kind of the, the modern day version of that is this, I know where you live. I know where you live. Jesus is not ignorant of the fact that the Christian church is set in a non-Christian world. And that we, we feel, as a Christian church, we feel on both sides the continuous pressure of worldly influence as well as worldly hatred. We feel that on both sides, the influence of this world tr trying to um, overwhelm us and the, hate, the hatred of this world for us. Jesus knows exactly what every church is experiencing, what every church is doing. In Jesus' risen, ascended, ruling, omnipotent position, he sees all and he knows all. And this is where we remember, and this is something important. The church does not belong to you. The church does not belong to me. The church does not belong to us. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. And he has an opinion about the faithfulness that takes place from this church. And he has an opinion about the faithlessness that takes place from this church. You know, we, sometimes we have this mindset that you know, we come and we do and it seems like Jesus is far off. But Jesus is not far off. He is intimately involved in everything we do. And he is absolutely opinionated and knows and has an opinion about our faithfulness rooting us on. And have, has an opinion about our faithlessness calling us as he does the church at Pergamum to repent of that. So the believers of Pergamum, think about Jesus knowing where they live. They would often remind themselves that no matter how hard it got 
being a Christian, Jesus knew where they, were, where they were. He knew what they were going through. He knew what they faced on a daily basis. He knew every intimate detail of their life in a city that hated God. And the word for all of us in this room today, 2,000 years later, is this. Jesus knows where we live. He knows the temptations we face. He knows the guilt that paralyzes us. He knows the pressures that we feel, the fear that has overtaken our hearts. He knows. He knows the countless concerns that we deal with on a daily basis. He knows the things that we magnify in our hearts and minds above him and to us, to all of us. Jesus is saying, fear not. I know where you live. I know what's going on in your life right now. Right now. Jesus knows Think of our lives. So think of our community. Think of our nation. So just stop for a second. Think about the community that we live in. Think about our nation. Is there not a sense of Pergamum among where we live? Immorality and idolatry everywhere. Immorality, idolatry everywhere. Yet in the midst of immorality and idolatry, we as believers can rest assured, and that is this, Jesus has sovereignly and strategically placed us right where we are for a reason. You know, sometimes we're like, oh God, if only you could send Christians to my workplace to show them how great you are. God, if only you can send Christians to my neighborhood to show my neighbors how great you are. And Jesus is like, I have. Uh, it's you. You're, you're, the, you're it. You're the one. You're the, the one. Jesus has placed us right where we are for a reason, to be light in the midst of our world. Let's keep reading. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. The, in the ancient world, a throne signified special authority or royal governance. So in some way, in some way, Pergamum had become the hub of Satan's power. It was the center of demonic activity. So believers were living where worldviews collided. They were seeking to live under the authority of Christ while facing every onslaught of the enemy. And I don't know what the most spiritually dark place you've ever been to is. For me, I can think of two. First is, um, is Haiti. Our trips to Haiti, 2007, 8, and 9, and I believe 2011, um, we, we were in Haiti, and um, if you've never been, if you've been there, I know Larry, Faith, Misty, others, you know exactly what I'm, I'm talking about, is at night hearing the drums of voodoo worship, welcoming in evil spirits, driving around neighborhoods at night and seeing candles lit outside of the voodoo temples, inviting the evil spirits to come in. You, I mean, you feel, I mean, actually, it's like you can feel the spiritual darkness in the air and then the the second thing, place i remember as far as the, the most spiritual darkness is our first trip to india and i know larry's going to remember this we went to a buddhist temple i don't know how in the world we ended up at a buddhist temple but we ended up at a buddhist temple and this temple was known for this number one um, they were still this temple was known for still doing human sacrifices so in 2012 they were still doing human sacrifices and then what would happen is this every family every buddhist family in this whole state when they had their first son once their son was weaned they would send their son to live in this buddhist temple and this son would never come home he would live there study there until he was old enough to become a monk and so we 
I don't know how we ended up there, and we weren't allowed to, to kind of, we weren't allowed to talk with anybody, or, or, but we were just allowed to walk around and look, and we just, we were told, just pray. And I tell you, and I, I'm sure Larry can testify, darkness, absolute, utter darkness, just reminded me that we're, we're sitting here praying for people who had never heard the name of Jesus, had never heard the name of Jesus. Jesus and praying in that moment. And so here's the picture. Satan's throne, according to Jesus here, is might be on earth, but it is not a throne of sovereignty. Satan rules, but he rules in a subordinate sense, meaning that Satan rules, but praise God, God overrules. And that's the picture that we have to see. Satan doesn't get the last word in your life or in my life. Jesus does. Jesus gets the last word in our lives. And look at verse 13, or it continues. Yet you hold fast my name. You do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So in the midst of satanic living, there were believers who were bold and who were audacious in their faith. In fact, Christ says they maintained their faithfulness even in dark days, even in the days of a guy named Antipas. Antipas had suffered for his faith and been killed for his faith. But here's a beauty, the beautiful picture here. Satan, or Antipas, suffered for his faith, died for his faith, and yet Jesus says, I know his name. None of this happened outside my knowledge. None of this happened outside of my vision of him. Tradition says that Roman Emperor Domitian had Antipas placed in a brass bowl and had him slow roasted. And that was his form of death. And Christ calls him my faithful witness. It's the same phrase used to describe Jesus in Revelation 1.5. So just as Jesus had been God the Father's faithful witness during his life on earth, Antipas had been Jesus' faithful witness during his life on earth. And that word witness is a crazy word because we think of witness, it means to speak something, something you've seen or heard. Now in the Bible sense, at first it meant that. Witness, you say something and, and you, you um, declare something. It started out that way, but so many Christians were killed for their faith and for speaking out as witnesses that the word witness actually became known as martyr. So it became known as martyr. So when Jesus says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Yes, he's saying, you're going to speak forth my name. You're going to speak forth the gospel. But ultimately he's saying, you're going to die. You're going to die for me in the nations, around the nations. And, and curiously enough, the name Antipas means one who suffers in the place of another. Which points us to one who ultimately suffered in our place. Who died in our place for our sin. And before we move on, look back at verse 13. Don't miss the mys here. Verse 13, Jesus is talking. If you believe in it, if it doesn't offend you, Circle those or underline those. Jesus says, you hold fast my name. My name. So you're doing it for my name's sake is what Jesus is saying. Then he says this, do not deny my faith. Listen, faith is only as good as its object. So faith is only as good as its object. You can have faith in yourself. You can have faith in your children. But faith is only as good as the object by which you put it in. But faith in Jesus, we will never be let down. It's his Faith, faith in him. And then Jesus calls Antipas, my faithful witness. So we can live our lives boldly or audaciously when we live our lives unto him. When we live our lives in him, unto Christ. So the church is commended for its audacity. But then third, the church is condemned 
for its accommodation. The church is condemned for its accommodation. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, the, the amazing man of God, the amazing pastor, he said this, here's the greatest evangelical disaster. The failure of the Christian world to stand for truth is truth. There is only one word for this, he says, namely accommodation. The evangelical church has accommodated to the world spirit of the age. First, there has been accommodation on Scripture that many who call themselves Christian hold a weakened view of the Bible and no longer affirm the truth of all the Bible teaches. This accommodation has been costly. First, in destroying the power of Scripture to confront the spirit of our age. But second, in allowing the further slide of our culture. Thus, we must say with tears that it is the evangelical accommodation or the compromise of us which removes the evangelical church from standing against the breakdown of our culture. Listen to what he says. Because of our compromise, we're no longer able to stand against a culture that is corroding because we look just like it. Listen, you, it becomes really, really hard to tell people to stop doing something you're doing yourself or to do something that you're not doing yourself. It becomes really, really hard to do that. It becomes really, really hard to be um, absolute salt and, and light when we have, we're not letting God's light get in us. We're not letting his salt impact us. Just listen to the words, the warnings and condemnation of Jesus here in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to the idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Something was wrong in Pergamum. They had become overly tolerant of others whose immorality threatened to undermine the purity of the church. Listen to this. Worldliness, compromise, and tolerance had um, just rushed into the church like a flood, and this church was in danger of drowning. Worldliness, compromise, and tolerance had rushed into this church like a flood, and she was now in danger of drowning. Some in this church held the name of Jesus, others to the name of Balaam, others to the name of, of Nicholas. And so Jesus points us back to Balaam. If you remember the story in Balaam, Numbers 22, the king Balak of Moab hired Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And Balaam said, I can only say what God allows me to say. So three different times, Balaam tries to curse Israel. And three different times, instead of cursing them, he blessed them. And Balak was like, are you an idiot? Like, I'm paying you to curse them, and you keep blessing them. What are you doing? So here's what Balaam did. Balaam taught Balak. He said, listen, they're God's people. You can't curse them, but you can corrupt them. So that is the message for us today, brothers and sisters. As God's people, if Jesus Christ lives in you, you can't be cursed. You can't be cursed. Stop, stop using and please bear with me here, stop using the stupid language of this world. I'm, I'm just cursed. Everything's against me. No, if God is for you, who can be against you? If Christ is in you, how can... Christ is not going to allow cursing to happen for someone he's in. It's not like Jesus is going to say, come on in, Satan, we'll share a room. That's not happening. So the picture is, we can't be cursed, but we can absolutely, without a doubt, be corrupted. And then this teaching of, of Nicholas, as we saw two weeks ago, the Nicolaitans taught that because you're saved, you can do whatever you want to. 
Live however you want to. And here's the picture for us. The Israelites were not able to sin without consequence, and neither can we. As a Christian, we serve a Savior who will not let us sin successfully. Let me say it again. Jesus will not let us sin successfully. Brothers and sisters, we have a choice to make. Either we compromise our lives under this world, or by His grace, we choose faithfulness. When your story is written, what, what is the story you want written over you? Do you want me to have to stand up here if, if I'm your pastor and lie about you one day going, they were great, awesome people of faith. And basically what that means is you came to church a lot. Why well, everybody knows maybe you compromised. Or do you want it said, man, God did something in their life and they were never the same. They were never the same. And they finish well. Brothers and sisters, think about this. Is there an area of your life, or maybe many areas of life, is there an area by which you've compromised? Where you look back, maybe 10 years ago, you thought something and you knew it was sinful. You knew it was something that God was not pleased with, and now you're doing it you know, with, without any kind of conviction whatsoever. And you might think, well, God just gave me freedom in that. Is it that, or is your conscience seared? We've got to be very clear here. Have we compromised as a people? Are we compromising in the truth of this word? What, in what areas of our life are we not pleasing to God? And think about this. If there's an area in your life that you're not pleasing God in, you might be able to ignore it, but I can tell you this, God isn't. He's not ignoring it. The reason you're here today and I'm here today is because God in his grace is confronting us in our compromising. He's confronting us. So the church is condemned for its accommodation. And then lastly, number four, the church is called to abandonment. So the church is called to abandonment. Let me just say something that we need to hear. The truth is that our flesh, your flesh and my flesh, does not like this book. Our flesh doesn't like this book because this book calls, calls us to change our minds, to change our allegiances, to change our behavior. Jesus says in verse 16, therefore, repent. Stop doing what you're doing. Turn from your sin and turn around. 180 degrees, turn to me. And then Jesus says, if not, I will come to you and come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And stop here for a second and remember, Jesus is talking to his church. He's not talking to people outside the church. He's talking to his church, and he's saying, if you don't repent, I'm about to declare war against you. I mean, we don't think in those thoughts, do we? We think, oh, Jesus is just lovingly just rubbing us like a puppy. And that's just what he does, just puppy love, us and Jesus. And Jesus is saying here, church, you better get your act together. I'm about to declare war on you. Jesus will not tolerate rebellion, idolatry, immorality forever. Jesus, in fact, is at war against sin. May he not be found to be warring against us. Can you imagine? Just imagine a thought by which Jesus comes and wars against us. By which Jesus declares war against us because we won't turn from our immorality and our idolatry. Therefore, Jesus calls this church to, abandon, to an abandonment. Jesus says this, abandon the ways of the world. Abandon the thoughts of this world. Abandon the future punishment that's coming to this world. And let me just pause for a second and say this. 
There's so many people that um, have walked down an aisle, have signed a paper, have been dunked in water because this premise, they don't want to go to hell. Just because someone doesn't want to be punished doesn't mean they're godly. Listen, when my little eight-year-old boy, as mischievous as he is when he does bad things, and he says, don't punish me, Daddy, I don't go, He's, he is so godly. I mean, that's so godly. Look at him, how godly he is. He doesn't want to be punished. There's nothing godly about not wanting to be punished. None of us want to be punished. Here's the point, and please hear this this morning. If you have no desire for Jesus right now in your life, then you don't want heaven, regardless let me say it again. If you have no desire for Jesus in your heart right this moment, then you really have no desire for heaven because Jesus is not about your loved ones. He's not about all these great, amazing things. Or heaven's not about all these amazing things. It's about Jesus. We get it all wrong. I think sometimes we have this thought process. We're going to get to heaven. All of our loved ones are going to come up to us and we're just going to have a great family reunion over to the side and forget everything else is going on. And I can just imagine Peter saying, hey, would y'all shut up? We're talking about Jesus. But y'all shut up. We're worshiping Jesus. Stop y'all's nonsense. It's about him. Brothers and sisters, if we don't have a desire in our... I mean, understand that. If you don't have a desire for Jesus now, then you don't really want heaven. Because heaven is all about him. It's all about him. And then Jesus says in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Listen, don't miss this. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So in closing, let me just say this. To those who overcome, Christ promises three things. Let me lay those before you. First of all, he promises hidden manna, referring to the manna supernaturally provided um, by God to Israel during their wilderness wandering. God actually called this manna bread from heaven. Moses commanded that a, a jar of this manna be placed into the Ark of the Covenant along with the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff. According to one Jewish tradition, just before the temple, the, the temple of God was destroyed in 586 B.C., the prophet Jeremiah took the Ark of God and hid it in a cave under Mount Sinai. And the tradition says that there it would await the coming of the Messiah when he came to reign. Think about the beauty of that. But here's what we know. When Jesus came the first time, he declared, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. He who eats of me will live forever. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying in one sense, I am the hidden manna that brings life. Jesus and only Jesus will provide for us now and will provide for us forever. Then secondly, to those who overcome, Christ promises to give a white stone. Now, some people argue that this white stone signified basically the stone of acquittal at a trial. So at a trial, someone would um, just have testimony against them at the end. The judge would, would come. They would put their hand out. The judge would place a stone in their hand. They would close their hand, and they would open it up. If it was white, it meant they were found innocent. They were acquitted. If it was black, it meant they were condemned and guilty. So if that is the background to our text, Jesus was highlighting the reality of forgiveness. Others say the white stones were often used as tokens of membership or tickets for admission to public festivals. So if that's the background, then basically the white stone could be a symbol for us entering into the, the messianic feast that we read about in Revelation 19. Here's what I like to do. I like to say it means both of them. Because in our salvation, not only does God look at me filled with my sin, 
filled up to the brim with my sin, and because of my faith in Jesus, God looks at me and says, absolutely, you are sinful. But because of your faith in my son and what he has done for you, I declare you not guilty. You are forgiven. That happens in our salvation, brothers and sisters. But not only does that happen, that would be enough, right? If God would just forgive us, that would be enough. But God doesn't just stop at forgiving us. God then says, not only are you forgiven, you're mine. You're mine. You're my child. You're my son. You are my daughter. Not only do we get forgiveness, we get him. We get him forever and ever. And then third, to those who overcome, Christ promises a new name written on that stone. So ultimately, this is, Jesus says, a new name that no one knows. I can't wait to tell you what this means. So the new name that no one knows means we don't know. That's what it means because that's what Jesus said. Now, people have tried to come up with all kind of crazy ideas of what it means. But ultimately, if Jesus says you're not going to know, I believe it means you're not going to know. Um, so the point is, here's what we do know. The nourishment given to us from Christ, the stone and the new name, are an intensely personal gift from God to his people by which we are nourished by Christ, by which we are welcomed in by Christ, and we are given a name by Christ. Pastor Sam Storms put it this way, If Jesus is himself the manna, Perhaps the point is that all that awaits us in him is hidden in the sense that it is reserved and kept safe and guarded against all possibility of loss so that we might revel in its certainty and the assurance that what God has promised, he will indeed provide. What God has promised to you and me, brothers and sisters, he will provide, meaning there is an identity that you have in Christ that will only get better and better. Let me end this way. It is Jesus and only Jesus who says, I will be your, your food now and I will be your food forever. It is Jesus and only Jesus who says, I will be your entrance into heaven as your home. And it is Jesus and only Jesus who says, I will give you a name that can never be taken away from you. What the world offers right now what the world temporarily offers us right now pales in comparison to what Christ offers us now and forever. Brothers and sisters, may we turn away from compromise. May we turn away from things that are not pleasing to him. And may we make it our desire in him, through him, by him to be faithful to the end. There was um, a few years ago, it was probably 12, 13 years ago, there was a missionary who came and um, he was probably here for two months and he made this church his home for two months. I'll never forget, I was preaching one Sunday night, and I began with just you know, the, the usual thing. Well, hey, what, what, are you, what are you most fearful of? What are you most scared of? And, of course, we all were kind of laughing and carrying on as we were saying, you know, I talked about my fear of snakes, and other people talked about their fears of spiders and other things, and we were kind of all laughing. And then I called on him. He raised his hand, and he stood up, and he said this. My greatest fear is not hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. And it was like the air just got sucked out of this room in a very good way. It wasn't like, oh, you fun sucker, why are you taking all the fun out? But it was a reminder that all of us will one day have to stand before God and not everyone will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But may we not compromise now so that we can hear that then. That we can hear our God say to us, well done. You finished. You finished. You didn't compromise. You didn't stop early. You finished. 
And even today, maybe you're in this room and maybe you have stopped. Maybe you have fallen. Maybe you've fallen flat on your face. And maybe right now the race is still going on and you're on the sidelines. The fact that you're here today shows that God wants you back in the race. He wants you back in the race. Get back in the race, brothers and sisters, and finish up in him and through him. If you can stand to your feet, we're going to call the musicians forward and enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever God is saying to you, that you would do it. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you thanking you for your word, the power of your word that's living and active. It's powerful. It's alive. And Lord, we know it's alive because of the way we know it. it's working in our hearts right now, in our minds right now. Holy Spirit, you're attending your word in a way by which we are convicted. Father, we pray that we would not be, as your church, we would not be the church of compromise. That we would not be individuals of compromise. But that we would abandon the thoughts of this world. Abandon the ways of this world. For a better way. Jesus, you are the way. The way is a person. This is eternal life, that we can know you now. And that we will know you forever. Father, I pray for anyone in this room or anyone in the sound of my voice today that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. I pray also, Lord, for brothers and sisters in this room that, Lord, compromise in this moment has won. We've compromised. We're we're no longer a, a benefit to ourselves or to others. We've been dwelling in that halfway land, trying to put one foot in each camp. It just hasn't worked for us because it can't work for us. And I pray today, Lord, that you would call believers, God, to take that foot out of the world, out of compromising, and place that foot by your grace and by your strength, Lord, in your camp, giving themselves to your will. And knowing, Lord, that we will mess it up along the way. We will falter. We will fall, God. But you are faithful and just when we confess our sins to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, thank you that you are the rock of ages. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the cornerstone. When our lives are placed on you, our lives might be shaken, but you never will. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you. 